Well, if you have your Bibles with you one more time this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 26. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1058. If you're a guest with us, we've been studying through the Gospel of Matthew, uh, following Jesus' journey to the cross. And we've come to a very significant passage in the life of our Lord this morning. And we'll begin reading in verse 36 of Matthew chapter 26. And I'll speak for a few moments this morning on this subject, a man of sorrows. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 36. And this is what the Word of God says. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. For the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cup cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See The hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. It was probably midnight on the Thursday of Passover week. He had preached his last public sermon, had instituted the new covenant at the end of the Passover meal with his disciples, had warned his disciples of their impending desertion and denial. And now Jesus had come to the Garden of Gethsemane. And as he continued to make his final preparations for the cross, his time in the garden fulfilled the prophet's description of him as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Jesus knew sorrow and grief like no one before him or after him. And the height of that sorrow and grief was painfully and powerfully illustrated through his time in the garden. It is impossible for us to comprehend the depth of Jesus' agony. Because as sinless and holy God incarnate, he was able to perceive the horror of sin in a way that you and I cannot Therefore, even to attempt to understand the suffering of Jesus that night on the Mount of Olives in the garden is to tread on holy ground. John MacArthur said of this passage, the mystery is too profound for human beings to comprehend and even for angels. We can only stand in awe of the God-man. William Barclay in his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew called this a passage that we must approach upon our knees. The New Testament scholar D.A. Carson wrote, As Jesus' death was unique, so also was his anguish. And our best response to it is hushed worship. J.C. Ryle said, We ought to read it with reverence and wonder. For there is much in it which we cannot fully comprehend. Charles Spurgeon wrote of this passage, Here we come to the holy of holies of our Lord's life on earth. 
This is a mystery like that which Moses saw when the bush burned with fire and was not consumed. No man can rightly expound such a passage as this. It is a subject for prayerful, heartbroken meditation more than for the language of humans. In his book, The Cross and the Experience of Our Lord, Professor Finlayson asserts that in approaching this solemn study, we must tread reverently and cautiously. Gethsemane is not a field for the intellect. It is a sanctuary for faith. In this passage, as Jesus wrestles with Satan, Matthew contrasts the actions of the disciples with those of Jesus. And through both his words and his example, Jesus teaches the disciples and all believers everywhere how to face the severest of trials and temptations. For Jesus was truly a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. Now would you notice with me first of all in the text this morning in verses 36 to 38, the depth of Jesus' sorrow. Matthew tells us in these verses that after Peter and the other disciples proclaimed their loyalty to Jesus, even if it meant their death, in verse 36, that they all went with Jesus to a place on the Mount of Olives called Gethsemane. Now that word Gethsemane literally means an olive press, and it's often believed that this was a gardened orchard of olives. And the garden probably belonged to a believer who had allowed Jesus to use it frequently as a place of retreat and a place of prayer. This garden most likely had a fence or a wall, as well as a main entrance with a gate. And you'll notice at the end of verse 36 that Matthew records that Jesus wanted his disciples to remain at the entrance of the garden to keep him from being disturbed while he prayed. And so he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And then in verse 37, you'll notice that Matthew tells us that Jesus left the other eight disciples at the entrance to the garden, and he took with him Peter and the sons of Zebedee. Now, James, John, and Peter were the most outspoken of all of the disciples, And they were obviously the leaders of the group. And as the gospel accounts reveal, they were the inner circle to whom Jesus repeatedly gave special attention. And that's why once again here in this most significant of passages of Scripture, Jesus separates Peter, James, and John from the rest of the disciples so that he can teach them one final lesson about facing temptation by praying and finding strength and confidence in God rather than in themselves. Now you'll recall that this account is on the heels of their self-declared dependability to Jesus. And Jesus knew that these men needed to learn the humility and the poverty of spirit that was necessary to faithfully and powerfully and effectively serve God. Furthermore, Jesus wanted to show them that in His humanness, even the Son of God needed the strength that came from communion with His heavenly Father. Now, it's important to note at the outset of this passage that although Satan's activity is not mentioned in this event by the Gospel writers... His evil presence is fully evidenced by how John describes that Satan entered Judas, who then left the upper room and went away to carry out the betrayal of Christ. And so even though Satan is not mentioned in this text, we can be certain that his participation is fully here. For just as Jesus began his earthly ministry with relentless temptation from the devil, urging him three times to demand his rights, and each time Jesus responding with scripture, 
So now, at the end of his ministry, as Jesus agonized in the garden on the last night of his earthly life, the devil came and attempted, tempted him three more times to demand his rights. And each time Jesus faced that temptation, not with scripture, but with earnest prayer. Satan tempted Jesus to rebel against God the Father by avoiding the cross and disqualifying himself as the once for all sacrifice for sin and the conqueror of death, hell, and Satan himself and thereby forfeiting any possibility of salvation and leaving man under the curse of sin. And I want you to picture in your mind at the outset of this passage what had to have been going on in Jesus' life. Can't you imagine the devil whispering in his ear, Jesus, you don't deserve to suffer. You don't deserve to be beaten and mocked and spit upon. You don't deserve to be scourged, let alone die. Jesus, you deserve honor and glory and power and praise. Jesus, you should just avoid all of this all together. And you'll notice, both at the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry, Jesus faced the devil, Jesus faced temptation with scripture and prayer. And those are the exact same resources that God has given every believer to deal with the devil and to deal with temptation. And here, Jesus wanted Peter, James, and John to learn these lessons about scripture and prayer and temptation and defeating the devil. And he wanted them to learn them so that they could pass them on to the other disciples. And so as Jesus separates Peter, James, and John from the rest of the group, he didn't do it solely for his benefit. He did it for theirs. And Matthew records in verse 37 that as he pulled Peter, James, and John aside, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Jesus had always known that he had come to earth to suffer and die for the sins of the world, but now the climax of his anguish and his sorrow and his grief had arrived. The one whom the angels praise and with whom God the Father is well pleased in just a few short hours would be cursed and mocked by the wicked multitudes, many of whom had only days earlier sung his praises and waved palm branches at him. And compounding his grief would be Judas's betrayal, the desertion of the other 11 disciples, the shame and cursing and denial of Peter, and the final rejection of God's chosen people, Israel. And along with this burden of loneliness, Jesus faced the torturous acts surrounding his death. But listen carefully, friends. His ultimate sorrow lie in the truth that he who knew no sin was about to become sin and experience separation from his heavenly father. His agony over that prospect is undescribable. And Matthew says he was full of sorrow and troubled. But you'll notice in verse 38 that Matthew says that Jesus went on to tell Peter, James, and John, my soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. And that phrase, very sorrowful, means deeply grieved. And it listen, it's related to the term where we get the word periphery. It carries this idea in this picture that when Jesus says that he is very sorrowful, he feels as if sorrow and grief and the weight of all that he is about to go through is completely surrounding him. That everywhere he looks, all he can see and feel is this deep abiding sorrow and grief. 
And he described it this way to Peter, James, and John. Do you see it in the text? It was like death. It was as if he felt that he was at the point of death. Not at the cross. Right here in the garden. The point of death. The old theologian B.B. Warfield said in these supreme moments, our Lord sounded the ultimate depths of human anguish and the intensity of his mental sufferings gained him the title, Man of Sorrows. Now Matthew tells us in verse 38 that before Jesus went to be alone with his father, he asked Peter, James, and John to keep watch with him. Luke, in his account, in Luke twenty-two forty, 40, states it was at this point in the narrative that Jesus told his disciples they should pray that they may not enter into temptation. And his words to them were, watch and pray. And they're both imperatives. And when Jesus said, watch, he was emphasizing to Peter, James, and John that he wanted their companionship In this moment of sorrow and grief and agonizing, he wanted their physical presence as friends. And when he says to them, pray, Jesus was saying to them that he wanted them to stay physically and spiritually alert for the primary purpose of praying and not giving in to temptation. And here's what's amazing about the text, friends. You read it along with me, didn't you? Nowhere in this passage of Scripture does Matthew indicate that Peter, James, and John uttered a single prayer. No hint that they called upon God the Father to strengthen them. They rested in their self-confidence that they boldly declared just verses earlier. They thought they were in Invincible. And by contrast, the sinless Son of God felt a desperate need for communion with his heavenly Father. Job reminds us in Job chapter 5 and verse 7 that all of us are born to trouble as sparks fly upward. The sorrows and troubles of life, whether they're in our minds, whether they're with our bodies, whether they're within our families or our work or even our church family, the sorrows and griefs and troubles of life are unavoidable. And the question this morning is not if we will experience sorrow and trouble. The question is what will we do When sorrow and trouble and grief surround us like it did Jesus. In the moments of his deepest sorrow, Jesus depended upon his heavenly father. And through each wave of temptation, the Bible says that Jesus prayed earnestly. And as the intensity of the temptation increased, the intensity of his prayers increased. And so I ask you this morning, is that how you respond to grief? Is that how you respond to sorrow? Is that how you respond to temptation and the troubles of life? Independent prayer upon your heavenly Father? It's what Jesus did. When we not only see the depth of Jesus' sorrow, secondly, we see the disposition of Jesus in his sorrow. In verses 39 to 45. Now you'll notice, as we walk through these verses, that Matthew focuses alternately on Jesus' prayers to his heavenly Father and on Peter, James, and John Falling asleep. And I'm showing you this at the outset because I want you to see the contrast back and forth as we walk through the text. Now notice that Matthew tells us in verse 39 
that after Jesus spoke of his sorrow and his grief to his disciples, he went a little further beyond Peter, James, and John, and he fell on his face and he prayed to his Father. And the depths of Jesus' sorrow is evidenced by his posture in prayer. He fell on his face and prayed. Mark says in Mark 14, 35, that he fell on the ground and prayed. And as he laid there prostrate, Matthew says that Jesus addressed God the way he always did, saying, my father. Mark adds that Jesus used the phrase, Abba, Father, the word Abba being Aramaic, uh, literally translating our equivalent of Daddy. And with these words that Jesus, is, Jesus expresses at the outset of his prayer, he is illustrating a height of intimacy. An intimacy that was unknown by the Jews of Jesus' day. In fact, it's what they accused Jesus of being guilty of blasphemous feet for. John tells us in John 5.18 that this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so Jesus begins in intimacy and prayer saying, My father, and Matthew says that he cries out, If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Mark says that he prayed, all things are possible for you, God. Remove this cup from me, if it is possible. Now to be clear, Jesus wasn't wondering if escaping the cross was within the realm of possibility. He knew, friends, he knew that he could walk away from the cross and from death anytime he chose. He testified to this reality in his public ministry to the Pharisees. In John 10, 17 and 18, he said to them, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Listen, no one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. And this charge I have received from my Father. But here, under the weight of becoming sin, Jesus prays in intimacy. Asking if his, fa his Father, if there was another way to fulfill the plan of redemption. And deal with the sin of man besides drinking the cup. What's the cup? Well, in the Old Testament, the word cup was used as a metaphor for the wrath and the judgment of God. And in the New Testament, that same imagery is used in Revelation 14.10, where John describes the wrath and the judgment that will come from the cup of God's wrath that will be poured out on the world on the last days. Friends, the cup of the cross was not primarily Jesus' physical suffering. The cup of the cross was predominantly Jesus' spiritual suffering. What is causing Jesus such anguish here in this passage is not the prospect of what is about to happen to him physically. It's about what is about to happen to him spiritually. When Jesus went to the cross, he experienced being made sin and a curse for the sins of man and the full cup of wrath from God for sin would be placed and poured out upon him and he would experience separation from his heavenly father. And this, this is the anguish that Jesus is praying about. When he says, my father, if it's possible, if there's another way to fulfill your plan of redemption and salvation, let this cup, 
Let this wrath, let this judgment, let this me becoming sin for the world pass from me. Spurgeon said of Jesus' prayer at this point in the text, the whole of the punishment of his people was distilled into one cup. No mere mortal lip might give it so much as a solitary sip. When he put it to his own lips, it was so bitter, he well nigh spurned it. Let this cup pass from me. Listen. But his love for his people was so strong that he took the cup in both of his hands and at one tremendous act of love, he drank damnation dry. That's what Jesus did. Friends, Jesus experienced the wrath of God so that you and I could experience the love of God. Jesus drank the cup of wrath so that you and I could drink the cup of communion. Jesus drank this cup so that you and I would never have to drink it. And Jesus drank this cup so that we who were enemies of God could now be called friends of God. And to this, J.C. Ryle said, how great that burden must have been no heart of man can conceive it. It is only known to God. At the end of verse 39, Jesus expressed his full submission to the Father, saying in the midst of this prayer, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Friends, Jesus was truly being tempted at this moment in the garden. And though he was sinless and unable to sin, he was clearly brought into the realm of conflict with temptation. And in verse 40, Matthew says that after Jesus poured his heart and soul out to his Father in this prayer, he came to Peter, James, and John. The three that he had just said, watch and pray. And look at what verse 40 says. He found them sleeping. Now he was not surprised by this. He was omniscient. But could you imagine on a human level the pain and the heartbreak? That Jesus had to have felt in that moment after bearing his soul in prayer and wrestling with temptation before his father only to come back to his closest earthly companions and find them snoring. They could not watch and pray in even the last hours of his life. These are the same three disciples. Do you remember? In Luke chapter 9, when Jesus was on the mount and he was transfigured before their very presence, Luke records they slept at that event too. And here they are again. Despite all of Jesus' warnings of abandonment and denial, and their pledge to be right by his side to the very end, even if it meant the loss of their life, they couldn't even stay awake. And the implication seems to be that if they would have listened to Jesus and watched and prayed and sought their heavenly Father's help just as Jesus exhorted them to do, they would have been able to stay awake. They would have remained spiritually alert. They would have been given the spiritual strength and courage and fortitude that they needed in the hours that were yet to come. And notice, in response to finding his disciples asleep, Matthew says at the end of verse 40 that Jesus, look at the text. I, I missed it the first time I read through it. It was on repeated readings that I saw it. And Jesus said to Peter, not to all of them, he said to Peter, so, could you not watch with me one hour? Why did he do that? 
Well, you remember in verse 33, just a few verses prior, Jesus said, Lord, these other 10, they're all going to fall away. But I'm your man. I'm never going to fall away. And then in verse 35, he said, Jesus, even if it costs my life, I'll die for you. And now Peter looks at, or Jesus looks at Peter and he says, weren't you the one, Peter? Peter, you're always the one. And you couldn't watch and pray for one hour, Peter? You couldn't be persistent and stay spiritually alert for one hour? And you think you'll never fall away? Then notice in verse 41, Jesus said to them, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. It's the second time he says it to them. And and this is an imperative. And it's present tense and it carries the idea of continuous action. This is literally what Jesus was saying to Peter, James, and John. Keep watching. Keep praying. Stay physically and spiritually alert. Peter, James, and John... Be discerning enough to know that in this moment in the garden, warfare is taking place around you. Just like me, you are surrounded by grief and trouble and trials. You must resist the devil. You must say no to temptation. You must keep watching. You must keep praying. Quit depending upon yourselves. Depend upon your heavenly Father. And it's clear from the text that Peter, James, and John did not learn this lesson that night in the garden. But the Bible teaches us that Jesus, that Peter, excuse me, eventually learned this lesson. In 1 Peter chapter 5, to the suffering Christians of his day, in verse 8, Peter said, be sober-minded, be watchful. Did you hear that? Watch, pray, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He eventually got it, didn't he? But not that night. At the end of verse 41, you'll notice that Jesus acknowledges to his disciples the difficulty of watching and praying continuously and staying alert and doing what's right by saying to them, the Spirit Indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And don't you know that to be true this morning, friends? Oftentimes our spirit is indeed willing. And the problem isn't so much with our spirit, the problem is with our flesh. Paul understood that. He would expound on this truth for half of a chapter in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 7. And in those verses, he confessed that there was a war in him between his spirit and between his flesh, between the law of sin within him in his fleshly human humanity and the law of righteousness in his redeemed and renewed and changed mind. And at the height of his explanation of this war between the flesh and the spirit in Romans 7.19, he said this, I bet you can relate to it. I sure can. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Can anybody relate to that this morning? It's the war waging within us and around us. It's what Jesus is picturing and teaching his disciples in the garden on this night. Oh, your spirit may be willing, Peter, James, and John. But your flesh is so weak, you need to submit and depend upon God. You know what he was teaching them? The same thing that he's teaching us. None of us are strong enough to overcome Satan and the desires of the flesh on our own. If we were, we wouldn't struggle and make the same bad decisions over and over and over again. We wouldn't get continually frustrated with ourselves and say to ourselves in the quietness of the moment, why do I keep doing this? I want to stop. It's what Jesus is showing Peter, James, and John in this passage. When we 
try to overcome this danger on our own, we become spiritually shipwrecked. And that's what happened to Peter, James, and John. Now notice in verse 42, that Matthew says that Jesus went away and he prayed for a second time and he said, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And something amazing happens in the text at this point in the account. But Matthew doesn't describe it. Luke does. Because Luke is the gospel writer of detail. And Luke gives tremendous detail at this point when Jesus goes away to pray for the second time. And this is what Luke says in Luke twenty-two forty-three, That there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him while he prayed. It's amazing. Did you ever notice that before? Do you remember in Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus was tempted at the beginning of his ministry and after he successfully defeated the devil in those temptations, what the Bible says happened to him? An angel came to him and ministered to him after the temptation. And what's happening right here in the garden as he goes to pray the second time? A second wave of temptation is coming from Satan. And what does God the Father do? Send an angel from heaven to strengthen Jesus and to help him in the midst of this agony that he is surrounded by. And Luke says that as the angel came and strengthened Jesus, when Jesus began to pray this second time, you're familiar with this passage. Here's how Luke described it. He began to pray more earnestly. And he prayed so much that his sweat became like drops of blood falling from his forehead. One writer said the magnitude of his grief apparently caused his capillaries to dilate and burst. Because they burst under the pressure of the deep stress and anguish. And as the blood escaped, it was mixed with the water and it dropped off of his face. Did you know that the writer of Hebrews wrote that that's exactly what Jesus did? In Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7, he says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard. Because of his reverence. That is what's happening right now in the garden. And notice that after praying so earnestly, Jesus was once again disheartened. In verse 43, he went back to Peter, James, and John. And he found them doing what? Watching and praying? No, sleeping. And notice the description Matthew gives. Because their eyes were so heavy. Luke says... They were sleeping for sorrow. Here's what I think was going on. Peter, James, and John were confused. Jesus had been telling them, you're going to deny me. You're going to fall away. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to suffer and die. No, Lord, you're bringing in your kingdom. They still didn't get it at this point. You're bringing in your kingdom. None of this is going to happen to you. They couldn't understand why Jesus kept telling him this. They saw the grief and the agony around him. And they couldn't handle it. They withdrew mentally and emotionally because They were so sorrowful. They retreated to sleep so they didn't have to face the events of what was going on. Because they refused to depend upon God, they could not engage in the reality around them. They could not stay awake. They could not watch and pray and support their Lord. Then notice in verse 44, Jesus went away a third time and prayed, saying the same words that he prayed the previous two times. He prayed three times, not because he was trying to avoid the cross. He prayed three times because he didn't want to avoid the cross. He prayed three times to defeat Satan at the point of temptation. And you'll notice in verse 45... That Jesus came to Peter, James, and John and woke them up a third time. And he said, 
sleep and take your rest later on. Instead of following Christ's example, the disciples slept. And when the crisis came and temptation reared its head and when Satan struck, they were unprepared because they didn't watch and pray. They sowed to the flesh instead of the spirit and they reaped what they sowed. J.C. Ryle gives us this admonishment at the height of this account. Let us live like men on enemy's ground and be always on our guard. We cannot walk too carefully. We cannot be too jealous over our souls. Did you hear that, friends? You cannot be too jealous over your soul. It's the part of you that will live forever. You can't be too jealous of that. The world is very ensnaring. The devil is very busy. Let our Lord's words ring in our ears daily like a trumpet. Our spirits may sometimes be very willing, but our flesh is always very weak. So let us always watch and let us always pray. What a warning. What a warning that you can't be too jealous over your soul. Do you believe that? Do you live like that is true? Friends, Jesus was teaching the disciples that spiritual victory goes to those who are alert in prayer and depend upon their heavenly Father. And the other side of that lesson, and the one the disciples would learn first, was that self-confidence and unpreparedness are the certain way to spiritual defeat. And it may just be this morning that you feel so spiritually defeated as if you're always losing the battle between the flesh and the spirit. Because you're not watching, you're not praying, you're not living a life that is spiritually alert and dependent upon God in prayer. You're living a life that is depending upon yourself. You're living a life of prayerlessness. And I say to you this morning that if Jesus needed to depend upon prayer in his moment of temptation, how much more do you? How much more do I? From this passage, just practically speaking, I want to show you through the example of Jesus that you can learn lessons regarding prayer. True prayer is to God the Father. That's what Jesus did. It's what Jesus taught in his first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And when you pray, say, Our Father. Prayer is to the one true and living God. And if you pray to anything or anyone else, it is not true prayer. True prayer is to God the Father. Secondly, true prayer is always according to God's will. It's according to His interest, His plan, His purpose. And it is according to His word. That's where you find His will. And isn't that what Jesus did? He prayed according to His Father's will. According to to the word that his father had given him. Number three, true prayer is always persistent. Jesus prayed three times. Jesus persisted in prayer. And Matthew says he prayed the same thing all three times. And listen, he didn't pray it to change God's mind. He prayed to change him. Persistent prayer is not about us changing God and trying to get what we want. Persistent prayer is about God changing us through our communion with Him. And number four, true prayer is always done in faith, expecting God to answer. And Jesus knew when He prayed that His Father would answer Him. And I say this to you today, believer, by way of application. God hears prayer. 
God answers prayer. God commands us to pray because prayer matters. And Jesus himself prayed, giving us this example. So why not be so burdened for your soul, so jealous for your soul, that you would pray and I would pray the way Jesus prayed. When we not only see the depth of Jesus' sorrow and the disposition of Jesus in his sorrow, finally, we see the determination of Jesus in his sorrow at the end of verse 45 and verse 46. And here's what Matthew tells us happens. As Jesus walked back to Peter, James, and John for the third time and found them sleeping, he saw the men and the betrayer who were coming to arrest him off in the distance. And Luke says that while Jesus was still speaking to Peter, James, and John, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. John gives even more description. He says Judas knew where to find Jesus because Jesus regularly went to the garden and prayed and refreshed himself, and Judas knew he would be there, and so he brought the soldiers and the chief priest and his entourage to arrest him. And Jesus, Matthew says told Peter, James, and John, the hour has come, the moment of history when I will give my life and become sin has come. The Son of Man goes. And it's interesting. I missed this in the text till the very end of my studies. Jesus referred to himself here at this climax in his life as the son of man. And this title has roots in Daniel 7 verses 13 to 14 where Daniel prophesied that there's one who's coming like the son of man who will have an everlasting kingdom and he'll come in the clouds of heaven and he'll present himself before the ancient of days. In just in a few hours, Jesus would hang on the cross, becoming sin, separated from his heavenly father, put into a tomb, rose from the grave, ascended to heaven. And one day, one day soon, is coming back as Daniel 7 describes him. And in this moment of his betrayal and his arrest, what was on Jesus' mind is that picture of how he was going to come back. You don't think communion with his heavenly father helped him in that moment? He stood. He stood in the midst of unbelievable grief and sorrow and agony. And he stood firm. He stood victorious over the devil, over demons, over temptation. And with divine strength. Look at the text. He calmly He graciously, he selflessly submitted to betrayal and arrest and allowed, as Matthew says, the hands of sinners to take him into custody. And the Bible describes in John that Jesus knew everything that was going to happen. And when he saw Judas and his entourage coming, here's how John describes it. John says that when Jesus saw them, He left Peter, James, and John, and he went to them. Determined. Determined in his sorrow. What a text. What a text. Words don't do it justice. And I'll close this morning by reminding you of this, friends. The first Adam found himself in a garden. And when he was tempted by Satan, he failed to do God's will. But here we see a second Adam who also found himself in a garden tempted by Satan. But this Adam perfectly submitted to the will of God, resisted the temptations of Satan, and stood in victory. And he did, friends, all of this So that you and I could be forgiven and become friends of God. And what the first Adam lost for us in sin, the second Adam gained for us in righteousness.
Oh, if you don't know Christ, you stand at the foot of the cross today, friends, dead in your trespasses and sins. And listen to me. It's easy. It's easy to deceive yourself. The Bible says it's easy for you to deceive yourself. And thinking that you're right with God when everything in you is wrong. And I say to you this morning, how can you sit under the heaviness of this passage and not be moved and not be changed? The Bible teaches that the evidence of salvation is a present tense evidence. It means that there should be things in your life now that confirm that you know Christ. And I said this just this past Wednesday night in Bible study, and I'll say it this morning and close with this. If you have no desire for church, if you have no desire for the people of God, if you do not hunger for his word and want to be fed and nourished by it, if you never talk to God in prayer, if you don't love the things that God loves, why do you think you know him? How can you live your life saying you know him, but you have no connection, no communion to the things that he's given you? And you've seen him in this passage laid bare before you, taking on the grief and the agony and the sorrow of your sin. So that you could be right with your heavenly Father. Why would you not run to Christ in true, true confession and repentance and let him change your life? If there's no change in your life, there's no Christ in your life. Come to Jesus today. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled by your word. We can't understand the depths of this passage of scripture. Human words cannot describe it. And so all we say to you today is thank you. Thank you for Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.